Milford. Bishop, you don't know me. I'm the new church planter in Milford. Uh, and I was tasked with uh, this topic, which is Passover and the Lord's Supper. We're, we're going through this series where we're looking at different trajectories in the Scripture and how things get spelled out and filled out over time. Um, Passover and the Lord's Supper is an interesting one because right in the name of it, we're looking at a transition beginning to happen. So the, the questions I had for us to work through in our roundtable time are these four. Uh, what is the practical value of you knowing that you're saved? And what is your salvation for? And then what does it mean that you are united to Christ? And what is the practical value of being united to Christ? Now, I know the... the I'm basically asking you to do the application in those questions. Here, here's a doctrine. You're saved. What does that mean? What do you do with that? Here's a doctrine. You're united to Christ. What do you do with that? So take a couple minutes, talk, in your, talk amongst yourselves, and I'll call you back together. <laughs> I'm <laughs> 
Okay, let me call us back together and ask: Is is anyone willing to share with us what your what your table discussions were like? What kind of answers did you have to these different questions? You guys are good at avoiding eye contact. <laughs> okay, so what is the practical value of you knowing that you're safe? Where's the first place you go when you hear that question? Oh, is everyone like me? Yes. Assurance. Assurance. And peace. And peace. Practical value in having peace. Yeah. Yeah. We 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 have an assurance that, and it's assurance that that what. That we have eternal life, which implies one. And there's two things implied in that. One is I'm not going to hell. Now, in in, um, in a postmodern context, there's probably less of an automatic belief in hell. But I think for you know prior to say the last few decades, this was maybe a bigger deal because we we kind of all had a sense that there's there's you know a negative thing waiting for me that's 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 justly what I'm getting for the way I live. Uh, but so that's the negative side. What's the positive side of eternal life? Knowing that all things are working together for good. Knowing that it very succinctly, we should have like written a, a confession or something with that. <laughs> knowing that all things are working together for good. Uh, knowing that we have eternity with Christ. That there's there's this this positive trajectory we're moving towards. Uh, the Passover actually begins to set up some of these things. And I wanted to look at both the doctrine of the Passover and the doctrine of the Lord's Supper uh, using the, the rubric we use a lot at CPC is covenant and temple. Um, so and, and then so we're, we're looking at Passover, we're looking at Lord's Supper, but part of this trajectory is that we're also moving towards the eschaton. We're moving towards last things and saying how do these things affect the, the consummation of the kingdom. So we're going to do kind of all three of those areas, Passover, Lord's Supper, and what, what is the eschaton for Lord's Supper? Do you know offhand? The wedding Mary's feast. Supper. The wedding feast, the Mary's Supper of the Lamb, exactly. So we're going to look at Passover, Lord's Supper, and Wedding Supper of the Lamb with reference to covenant and with reference to temple. Uh, now, I've got a very long passage for us, so maybe the easiest way to do this since I've got the mic is just if I read it to us. So bear with me because we're looking at the establishment of the Passover in Exodus 12 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 and 25 through 19. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you shall make, <coughs> sorry, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. I timed it just right. There we go. Um, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, 
With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, I'm just going to read off of that if you can hear me. Uh, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, talking about this as being with reference to covenant, what covenant do you see taking place there? If if a covenant is two parties saying, if you do this, then I will do this, then, then what's the covenant being established there? Being spared judgment. Being spared judgment. If they kill the lamb, what's implied by that, if they kill the lamb, is that the lamb is taking whatever wrath is going to be poured out on others, and then they're marking themselves with the blood of the lamb on the on doorposts, and so in, in literal terms, the angel of the Lord will pass over their houses and go to the houses of the Egyptians and kill their firstborn. And the firstborn of the Israelites will be saved. And it was very much set up as a covenant. If you do this, this will happen. And if you don't do this, then your house isn't going to be marked in the way that the angel is going to be looking for, and the angel will come and visit the death of the firstborn on your house as well. And so part of, it, part of the, the, initial, um, the initial celebration of the Passover, the initial observance of the Passover, I'm, I'm going to differentiate those two words for a second here. This, this first time, it's an observance because they don't necessarily, you know, they've been told where it's going. But it's very different to be told, you're going to be allowed out of Egypt and your kids aren't going to be killed and their kids are. And you know, to be told that and then to actually see that take place. So this initial observance is, is setting up so that they're, they're marking themselves for the angel to come and pass over them. In future observances, this becomes a celebration because they're remembering what took place, which was, in, in a couple of ways, they literally were spared. One, their their children didn't die while the Egyptians' children did. And two, this was the event, if you remember the, the cycle of the plagues that God brought on the Egyptians, this was the final plague. And this was the event that finally tipped the scales to where Pharaoh said, okay, you can go, and they actually went. And so their, their, their salvation out of Egypt was actually accomplished in this. So with reference to the covenant, we're looking at Israel is spared judgment, by this action. The lambs are killed, the blood of the lamb is spread 
literally in a very symbolic way on them that then literally leads to their salvation from being killed. Uh, there's another side I want to look at in the Passover, though, is its reference to the temple. And for this, we're going to Leviticus 17. Um, the, the Passover gets referred to in Scripture as a, a sacrifice. But it doesn't compare, when you go through Leviticus, it doesn't line up with the sacrifices that are propitiations for sin. The sacrifices where the, the sin of the people are being put on an animal, and the animal is bearing the sin, and the people are being freed in that sense. Uh, where what was happening with the sacrificing of the lamb was that the people were being marked as God's people. And so it bears more connection to what is called either the peace offering or at times it gets referred to as the thank offering. That gets established in Leviticus 7, verses 13 through 15. With the sacrifice of the peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the, and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any part of it in the morning. Now the he there is not just the priest. It's also the person who has brought the animal for the sacrifice. Uh, the way a peace offering worked was you'd already had an atonement offering. And so your, your sin had been atoned for and now out of thanksgiving to God you're bringing an animal uh, that is, that is a, a matter of you saying, I love you, Lord, and, and I'm thankful for what you've done for me, and so I'm giving this animal. And the priest then takes the animal and slaughters the animal and burns the animal, which also involves cooking the meat of the animal, and then the priest and the person who brought the animal sit down and consume the animal. And the, the picture of what's happening there is that God is sitting down with the worshiper and eating at table with them. And so, whereas on the, the covenant side of Passover was looking at what God did in history and accomplished for His people, the temple side of the Passover was looking at God's presence with His people. And so as you observe this peace offering, you're getting that reminder as you sit with the priest eating the animal sacrifice. And typically when you see an animal sacrifice as an ancient Israelite, the animal get, you know, get, gets burned up. It's, it's your sin being imbued on the animal, and you don't get to participate in eating the animal. Because the animal is about atoning for your sin. And so then in this sacrifice, there's that shift. And you get to celebrate together with the priest that you're sitting at God's table in His presence. You've been restored to God. You've been made one who can actually sit in God's presence and eat with Him. And so that's an, an important step in, in understanding what Israel is being told as they observe the, uh, the Passover together. And, and again, remember there's, there's a link between Passover, the type of sacrifice Passover is, is a peace offering. And so they're both remembering what God did in history for them and saving them from Egypt and not killing their firstborn, and of God including them at His table, making them His people, calling them out of Egypt, not just to save them from Egypt, but to make them Israel to make them the people of God, the people who are the representation in the midst of the nations of God Himself. Uh, there's this, there's this uh, as we talked about image of God last week, we look at this, this theme in Scripture of God created man to bear His image. And man did a lousy job with that. And then God created Israel to bear His image and to show His image to the world, and Israel did a lousy job with that. And so as we see these fulfilled in Christ, we see that the Passover is looking forward to this. 
as Israel gets to experience that presence of God. So let's move forward then into the New Testament, Lord's Supper. And I'm going to read some some different selections from 1 Corinthians 11, um, and then we'll we'll go a few different places. Uh, But first, when you come together, it it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what seems to be happening in Corinth is that as they're observing the Lord's Supper, they're observing it in what appears to be sort of the context of a fellowship meal as a church. But they're not acting like the church. The people that have plenty to bring are gorging themselves and getting drunk, and the people that don't have enough aren't getting anything. And the church is disregarding each other. And this is, we'll get into this more when we turn to the, um, the temple aspect of the Lord's Supper, but this is breaking the unity of the body. So he goes on, this is the immediate following passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the the covenant aspect of the Lord's Supper that we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper is the reality that Christ's death means our restoration with the Father. Uh, Because Christ died, the Father does not have to visit His judgment against our sin on us. It's been visited on Christ, and now we are, this getting back to the earlier, what's your salvation for on the, the negative side? We're saved from hell. And that's actually something that's worth celebrating. Um, the, the Lord's Supper is not... So we, we talk about um, the, the sacrificial nature of the Passover, but said that it wasn't an, an atoning sacrifice. Uh, the Lord's Supper, contrary to the doctrine that the Lord's Supper is sort of a, a re-sacrifice in Christ for sin, it's a remembrance of Christ's one-time-for-all sacrifice for sin. But it's also not confession time. Uh, the way in the, in the churches that I grew up in, we tended to, to use the Lord's Supper as a time, and you know, one, one side of this was we didn't do it very often, but it was a time when you'd you know, try to just feel especially bad for your sin as you're sitting there hanging on to the bread and the water, or the wine, sorry, the grape juice, uh, waiting for it to get to everyone in the congregation. You're, what I was taught growing up is I just need to be you know, like really focusing on how bad I am and how awful I should feel that Jesus had to die for me. Now, it's true that I should feel awful that my sin is that bad, but we have a place for that in the service. It's confession. And in the service, the confession is not just a time of feeling bad, but of reminding ourselves that Jesus has forgiven us, that Jesus has restored us to Him, that we have confessed our nature and been told and given assurance that Jesus took that away, that Jesus has made us a new creature in Him. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's not a time when we're just trying to like make ourselves feel bad as we remember that Christ died. The remembrance that Christ died is a remembrance of a good thing for us. It's a celebration that Christ died to free us from our sin and to overcome our sin. Go on to the next passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, there's an ambiguity in the text here because throughout the New Testament, when apostles refer to uh, the Lord's Supper as, and use that word body, they say body and blood together. And we see that, let's see, profaning the body and blood of the Lord in the beginning portion of this passage. Then when he comes back, he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He doesn't use blood again. And so there's sort of an ambiguity introduced there, and I believe it's intentional. Because I believe Paul is trying to get us to focus on the mystic nature of the body of Christ. Uh, Throughout uh, church history, up until the Reformation, when we would talk about the mystery of the body, we were talking about the church. Since the Reformation, as we began discussing what's the difference between what Protestants and what Roman Catholics believe, we began focusing on what's the nature of the body in the elements. But that was a relatively new focus of the debate. Uh, Typically, we would talk about the nature of the body, and there's a blending because, and we, we, we focus on this a lot at CPC, we are the body of Christ. We are connected and we are the, the representation of Christ in the period of His ascension. We are actually His incarnation in the world. And so this ambiguity is, is pointing out the, the mystic body. The fact that in the church we are a body. And this is why it's in, in the context of how Paul is talking through this, for them to come together to have a fellowship meal and some people to gorge themselves, and some people to go away hungry, it's ignoring the union of the body. If if you are united to each other and to Christ, you can't treat each other that way. It's a denial of the actual reality that's being celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm starting to phase into talking about this uh, with reference to the temple, but look at how seriously Paul takes this. Uh, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So he's he's actually saying that there were physical repercussions to their failure to discern the body. Their failure to love and interact with that mystic body that was the actual thing that they were celebrating there. So it's very, very serious. Which leads us into, okay, how does this work? If, if it's that serious, how, how does this work? And so we're getting now into, uh, with reference to the temple, and I want to take a, a side excursus. Um, I talked about how during the Reformation, as Roman Catholics and Protestants began to differentiate, we're, we're getting into that, what, what is, you know, are we eating Jesus' body in the bread? Are we drinking Jesus' blood in the wine? Um, because of the direction that Protestants went with that, which was correct, which was, we'll get into what the, the Protestant argument was there, um, sometimes we, we swing the pendulum too far. You see an error and you just start, well, well let's define ourselves by the opposite of the error. And so, here again, to kind of use the church I grew up in as a whipping boy, um, the most common view of the Eucharist among 21st century evangelical Protestants, according to Keith Matheson, is symbolic memorialism. He writes, according to this view, Jesus' words of institution were purely symbolic. To eat the body and blood of Christ means nothing more than to put one's faith in Christ. The doctrine of symbolic memorialism denies any real presence of Christ in the sacrament. 
One proponent of this position goes so far as to say, rather than the elements containing or symbolizing the presence of Christ, they are instead a recognition of His absence. I said that covenantally, in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering our union with Christ. Sorry, covenantally we are remembering Christ's sacrifice and atonement for sin on our behalf. I don't want to, to use the word merely. I don't want to, it's, uh, it is symbolic. We are symbolically remembering, but I don't connect the word symbolic with merely the way we typically do as postmoderns or in the post-enlightenment era. We, we tend to, if it's symbolic, that means it's sort of ethereal. It, it's that symbol is different from real. Well, no, the point in a sacrament is that you're bringing together the real and the symbolic. And that God has made us as whole beings, as people that, uh, by making flesh beings, uh, you know, biological entities in His image, God is uniting the reality of the world with the, the spiritual realities He's talking about. And in the sacrament, we bring those things together. In uh, the Confession, chapter 29, Westminster Confession of Faith, we read, Our Lord Jesus instituted the sacrament called the Lord's Supper for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of Himself in His death. The sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto Him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Him and with each other as members of His mystical body. Uh, to, while we deny the, uh, the way that a, a Roman Catholic teaching on this would say that it's a re-sacrificing, or that the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, we don't want to swing the other way and start saying, yeah, it's just bread and wine and all we're doing is remembering something. Uh, when Jesus says to the disciples, this is my body, there's something significant going on there. And so it's, it's not a merely symbolic ceremony, it is a symbolic ceremony that unites uh, the, the confessional language is the, the symbol with the thing signed. It explains how this works in the next paragraph. In this sacrament, this is the confession again, Christ is not offered up to His Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick and the dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of Himself by Himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. Now, I'm going to note that word where it says a spiritual oblation. Uh, again, when, when you and I hear spiritual, we tend to think ethereal, not real. That's not what the word spiritual meant in a pre-modern context. Uh, we're getting back at the, the, pre, um, sorry, the peace offering concept here that in the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the presence of God. We're experiencing the presence of God. It's it's a celebration of and an experiencing of, in a special way, our union with Him. Uh, So the, the, the little phrase we use, you are what you eat, by the fact that we are made as biological beings that need food and that God chooses to use symbols of food in speaking His Word to us, that union with Christ is being spelled out to us, is being made real to us. Uh, I am a, a member of the group called Rotary. And Ellie started attending Rotary with me. And we were at a, a ceremony where they were uh, receiving new members. And they, they made a, a big deal of saying, you know, Rotarian so-and-so, you are now a member of this club, blah, blah, blah. 
So on our, on our drive back, she hadn't heard that term before, and she said, what's a Rotarian? And I said, oh, well, a Rotarian is a person who's a member of Rotary. And without thinking, I kind of went on to say, well, and, you know, kind of like a Christian is a person who's a member of, and I almost said the church, and then I said, well, wait a minute, actually, this, this works really well. A, a Rotarian is a person who's a member of Rotary. A Christian is a person who's a member of Christ. That is what the church is. The church is the body of Christ, but we are members of Christ. And that's what's being pictured to us in this ceremony where we are receiving His body and blood. Jump over to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5-7. through 7. Um, in, in working through these doctrines, in trying to figure out what, what is going on, what does it mean that we are saying that we are partaking of Christ in the bread and the wine? Uh, the, the, old, the medieval way of describing that was transubstantiation. Uh, even though if you analyze it and break it down and do whatever you can, it just stays bread and it just stays wine. Uh, Luther's answer was to say that the, the bread and wine don't become the body and blood, but the, the body and blood of Christ is present in, with, and under the elements. Now, as, as Presbyterians, we call that consubstantiation. If you tell a Lutheran that they believe in consubstantiation, they might hit you. Uh, they don't like that word. In fact, that's an old word. It's a word that was used to make fun of Luther's view, and Luther specifically said, I hate that term. It doesn't describe my view well. So don't tell a Lutheran that their view is consubstantiation. Um, but in trying to, to parse this out, the Reformed camp said, well, that's, that's not a good explanation of what's happening here either, because we believe that Jesus, in his humanity really has a real physical human body like yours and mine, and that that body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And so if we're saying that his body is physically in with and under the elements, or that the elements are turning into his body at different places all over the world, we're denying the, the real nature of his human body. We're denying that when, he, when, when we say that God became man, we're saying, well, he became man, but only sort of. Well, no, we want to cling to the doctrine that God really did become man, and that Jesus really has a physical body that has a physical location. Um, so, so Calvin picks up that word spiritual and says, this is accomplished spiritually, and he doesn't mean ephraimly or not really, but by means of the Spirit. Now, this, this can sound like sort of an, an end run, but when we don't understand it, sometimes we have to say, well... The Spirit can do things that I can't understand. They can't conform to my logic. Because my logic is affected by both my finiteness and my fallenness. Uh, but the Spirit isn't. So Calvin pointed to 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. through 7, And I'm, I'm throwing out names. Calvin was a church father at the time of the Reformation. I, most of you are probably familiar with this, but anyone who's not a church father at the time of the Reformation, he was not one of the people that helped to write Westminster, but he trained some of the people that trained the people that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of our um, constitutional documents as a church. So 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom we believed, you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he's pointing out in that passage, even though real things were happening, uh, by planted he means he went and he preached the word. Apollos was a teacher that came along after him and taught more of the Word, helped people to understand more of what God was revealing. But he's saying even though those were real things that happened, it was God's action that gave the growth. 
And so the appropriate way to understand what is going on in the Lord's Supper, it's really bread, it's really wine, we're really eating it, we're really drinking it, but it is God's Spirit that is accomplishing in it what God is saying we're doing. The Confession says it this way, chapter 29, uh, paragraph 5, The outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to Him crucified that truly... Yet sacramentally only, now again, we don't want to hear with our our modernist or postmodern understanding when they say sacramentally only, merely symbolic. They're not denigrating things by saying it's sacramental. They're limiting. Sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So it's limiting, but it doesn't leave us with the limitation. Worthy receivers, sorry, I'm jumping ahead and not showing this to you. Abby's a very visual learner and I'm a very audio learner, so I'm just happy just reading along this. I apologize to those of you that were like, what are you talking about? So now, uh, paragraph 7. Worthy receivers, outwardly partakers of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporeally, but spiritually, and again, here with pre-modern ears, spiritually not as in not really, it just affirmed, really and indeed, uh, by the Spirit, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of His death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Uh, There's... In the very doctrine of this, there is a dependence on the Spirit for what is going on. Now, what Calvin pictured is going on, that we are spiritually being transported into the throne room of heaven to partake of the presence of Christ. But where Calvin concludes his uh, doctrine of this, and he wrote this uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion as sort of an explanation of his theology, when he gets to the end of his discussion of the Lord's Supper, he says... I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. So we're, we're not trying to fully grasp what is going on. We're acknowledging that this is beyond our finite and fallen powers of deduction, but that we are, by the Spirit, partaking of our union with Christ. Now, I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 through 17. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Now, as I was looking through this, I was reminded of the, the passage we looked at earlier when we were in 1 Corinthians 11 where we actually have the Lord's Supper uh, instituted. And that we're, typically the words of institution we use come from 1 Corinthians 11. It was immediately preceded by that point where he's saying, in your fellowship meal, you're leaving some people out and you're getting other people drunk. This is failing the body. Um, we're, we're describing a similar situation. All things are lawful for me is in quotes there. He, he's referring to, some of you would say this, But remember, not everything is helpful. You say all things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be enslaved to whatever that lawful thing is. You demand that you be able to practice to the detriment of someone else. 
and the, the place he goes to explain you're not treating each other well as a body, he jumps on and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Uh, The picture of our union with Christ is a very real picture in Scripture. It's a picture of our interconnectedness with Christ and with each other. Jump ahead then to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, he's not getting bogged down in, are you chewing Jesus' flesh? Are you drinking Jesus' blood? There's this symbolic connection between the reality that we are united to Christ. And so in the sacrament, we are celebrating our participation of our real union with Him. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And there's this allusion back to the Lord's uh, sorry to the Passover there. So we're looking at this real union with Christ means also real union with each other. Yes. Could you explain? I was raised Catholic, so we always have the Lord's Supper every week. And clearly, what I love about this church is that we always have the Lord's Supper disorder. You alluded to the fact that your church growing up didn't have such a practice. And there are many that don't, even the Presbyterian um, denomination. Right. Could you talk a little bit about why you wouldn't? Where'd that come from? It's, so th- this, is, this is an interesting um, side fact. We, today, we associate weekly observance, or you know, at least a generation ago we associated weekly observance, that, oh that's a Catholic thing, and as a person who really enjoys weekly observance, part of the press back I sometimes get from Presbyterians oh well that's too Catholic, you know, we, we don't do it that way, that's too Catholic um, what's funny, Calvin wanted to celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly and he could never convince the consistory in Geneva to do that and what, what people read into that is, well, they thought it was too Catholic and they didn't want to do that. Well, no. Actually, because of the, the doctrine of what was going on in the Lord's Supper, and really stressing the don't come to the table unworthily, make sure you've confessed all of your sins to the priest, and make sure that you're in, in completely good conscience, or else uh, there, were, you know, there, there were people that would say, well, when you put it in your mouth, it'll burn you. It'll, you know, it'll do all these negative things to you. So there was actually the uh, Fourth Lateran Council, which happened in, um, I believe, the 12, 12 or 1300s. Look me up if you want to. In 12 or 1300, somewhere in there. Uh, that council stated that everyone who wants to call themselves a good member of the church needs to commune at least once a year. And so while the Mass was celebrated every week, the average participant wasn't a participant. They were just there to see it. And so in the medieval church, most people were not... For for them to say, you must commune at least once a year, what does that mean? The average person is not communing even once a year. And so the, um, the, the Lateran Council said we need people to commune at least once a year because people just weren't communing. So at, at the time when Calvin was saying to the consistory, which consistory is a little bit like a session, when he's saying to the consistory that he believes that they need to be practicing weekly communion, the reason they didn't let him do it was Geneva is a little bitty town. 
that is able to stay independent by carefully politically balancing the power of the places around it, and there's a lot of powerful Catholic cities around it. And the consistory was afraid that that would be too much of a slap in the face to the Catholic cities around them where people were only communing once a year if they started having their people commune every week. Uh, now, somehow over time, that came to different expression. In Scotland, there, there was a once-a-year communion where the whole church would come together and actually the elders would visit with each family and kind of talk through, does everyone understand what we're doing here? Now, they, they wanted, you know, it's appropriate that they want to be very careful to make sure that people understand what they're participating in and they're getting the symbolism right. But we very often twist that into a legalism where we start kind of excommunicating ourselves and we start falling back into that medieval error of not communing. If we really believe that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, which is what our confession says, in, in the same way that preaching is a means of grace or that prayer is a means of grace, we want access to it. Now, we, we want to be careful not to you know, look down our noses too much. It, it is still not uh, common or what we say typical Presbyterian practice. If you walk into any given PCA church, the odds are that they probably are somewhere closer to a once-a-month participation. Uh, the, the classic way that people in American Presbyterianism communed was four times a year plus Easter and um, Christmas Eve was the, the typical way most Presbyterian churches did things. Uh, they, we're in the middle of a sacramental renaissance right now where churches are examining this and saying, look, if, if what the confession says is what we believe, then the manner of our practice uh, probably should look, you know, if this is a means of grace, let's partake of the means of grace. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the, the story of how that's that's come to be where it is and, and where we, we have kind of flip-flopped what, what actually was the practice at the time of the Reformation. Um, because we have two minutes left, we always do this, I'm going to jump to the next part, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And what can I cut out so we can get through this? <laughs> I said to myself, I'm not going to leave us with nothing, you know, with everything left to say. Okay. Um, so, quick, quick, quick aside. Communion is a celebration. Both covenantally and in terms of experiencing the presence is a celebration of what God is doing. It's also a looking forward to. A celebration in anticipation of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, with reference to the covenant, and I'm just going to summarize what's in front of you. In Revelation 19, verse 9 and 11 through 18, it's, it's actually the only place at the end of, the Re of Revelation where that term, wedding feast, is used. And the term is actually referring to, uh, look at the beginning, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then if we skip to the next paragraph... We see Christ coming in power on the white horse um, to judge the nations. And the birds feast on the nations. And so in one sense, the wedding supper is looking at the judgment of God. But throughout Revelation, believers are being told, you are participants as judges in the judgment of God. And so that wedding supper of the Lamb, uh, the last verse... Then I saw the angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So in, in one sense, the way that Revelation pictures the wedding supper of the Lamb is the judgment of God against the unbelieving world. 
and it's careful to include believers as the participants in uh, judging with God. And so, as uh, kind of morbid as this sounds, one of the things that we are, are looking to in the eschaton, in the end times, and in, in the coming to fruition of all things, is that we are spared that judgment. And we are actually made instruments of that judgment as God's judges. Uh, the other side of this, though, is that the, the imagery, even though the word wedding supper itself is not picked up again, uh, the imagery in Revelation 21 and 22, and I'll just read a few little excerpts, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I'm going to skip ahead. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Uh, that, that picture of the uh, peace offering, of sitting down at the table with God that took place in the temple, we don't need a temple in the new heaven and the new earth because God Himself is in our presence and we're actually literally sitting down at His table. Let's see. This is picked up again in 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with the twelve kinds of fruit yielding fruit in each month. And the, the picture here is of God sustaining His people by His goodness. And so, in the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating both our covenant being spared, the fact that we are, are spared the judgment for our sin, and this is a real celebration. Not a, we've already confessed. It's not, it's not a morbid time of introspection. It's a time of celebrating that we're spared God's judgment. And it's also a celebration of and experiencing of our union with Him, which includes union with each other, looking forward to the eschaton, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, to when these things are real for us. We don't need a temple anymore. Because we actually are in God's presence. And the prophets, there's the, the, that, that refrain uh, that no one shall say to his brother or his sister, uh, we won't be teaching about God anymore because we'll all know God face to face. The, the reality that, we, that is true now, that we get a taste of in the Lord's Supper, will be a reality that we don't need to have to tell each other about because we'll just know it as surely as you know, we, we do these tests of like, what, what do you know to be true? That, you know, that I'm standing in front of you or that the roof is bigger than you are, you know, those kinds of things. We'll know as surely as we know that we're sitting, standing together in this room that we are united to each other and united to Christ. I have taken us only a couple minutes over, so if anyone has a quick question, I could take... Yes? One quick question. Uh, what do you mean by we are the instrument of judgment as, as God judges us? So in, in the new heavens and new earth, where that wedding picture is pictured as the, the pouring out of God's final judgment against the nations, um, throughout Revelation we have pictures of the saints... Uh, sitting on thrones in judging. So it's, it's like if you picture God as the judge and his people as the... Our legal system doesn't work this way, but picture the British legal system where you might have multiple judges. Uh, then, then God is the main judge and his people are the additional judges with him in, in spelling out that judgment. Uh, this... Um, I, I was thinking about this during the sermon this morning. We were talking about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, um, was on the one hand loved 
not for anything in Him. And we might see the, the covenantal aspect of the Lord's Supper there, of God loving us and sparing us. But then Mephibosheth is given a vineyard, is given sort of, you know, it's like he's made a noble. And so now he has a right to be at God's table. And that's the, the temple presence. Well, as judges, if you're made nobilities of the kingdom of heaven, you're actually part of, even though you know, we, we look at our sin, we know our brokenness, but the reality is that we are made new people in Christ. And as that, we are then used by God in the new heavens and new earth as his just judges to proclaim justice as he judges the nations in that initial act. Thank you. Any other quick blast? Okay. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we praise you that you have taken our punishment and that that is something to celebrate. That we are freed from our sin. But that we are not just left freed from our sin for you to put up with us. We are made new creatures as we are engrafted into you. And we are united to each other. We thank you for the picture that we get of that in the Lord's Supper. Uh, We thank you too for the, the picture that fellowshipping together around food is of this uh, in the way that the Lord's Supper is a, a foretaste of the wedding banquet of the Lamb, that we get to experience some aspect of the, the future fellowship of your body in the new heavens and the new earth as we come together as your people now. So bless our time together. Bless our food. Thank you for those that prepared it. Use us as we go out into the work that you have called us to as really your hands and feet, as really members of your body, as we're reminded in participating in the Lord's Supper that we are... Christ in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.